Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So the world leaders have met at Davos. They've parked their private jets. They've listened to Greta. And they've basically done nothing. In fact, the head of the World Bank didn't even bother attending. So did Davos do diddly squat for climate change well yes did really didn't it so what should be done well we'll look at that today on the debunking economics podcast with professor steve Keen. i'm phil dobby so you do realize steve that all this talk of, of climate change at, at davos and just generally this talk of climate change uh, and these doomsaying profits donald trump's words actually we've got to reject the perennial prophets of doom and their predictions of the apocalypse. That's what Donald Trump said. Mm. I think he was talking to you there uh, and uh, other climate change uh, supporters. And I know you, people like you, Steve, you, you, it's just a ruse by you know the far left like you to challenge the established capitalist world to replace it with communism that takes away our freedoms and destroys our, um, our living you, standards. You. All this climate change is crap. Tell us what you're really about. You, just, you, you don't believe in climate ex- change. You are just trying to get your communist ways and get rid of capitalism. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Absolutely. It's a total fraud. Yep. Yeah. There's 60,000 climate scientists are all there are actually closet communists. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, well, yeah, of course, obviously they are. But I mean, this is, I am starting, the reason why I said that was I had someone on the, on the radio, uh, a, a right-wing commentator, saying just that. And you yeah. do you do hear it a lot, don't you? That, uh, yeah, I mean, we, and it, it, it's a very, very successful tactic because what it's done is plant this in the classical left versus right political agenda of the last 50 years. Yeah. You take it back to the French Revolution seriously, but but you know the last fifty years of politics, it's left versus right, and all this stuff is you know um, it, it, it's it, it's the snowflake uh, versus the the hard the hard hard men of uh, industry. It's uh, it's communists versus uh, free marketeers, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. This is an anti-free market, pro-communist vision. It must be stopped at all costs, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, that's that's been a very effective framing of the whole debate. Because we get stuck in the, you know, Republicans don't believe in climate change and Democrats do uh, division as if it was originating in politics. And the thing is, it originated in physics and originating in engineering. And that is the, the, the real travesty of all this. But, but I, the first, yeah. yeah, I would, uh, last week, just shortly after Davos had finished, I, uh, I was uh, being interviewed by George Galloway. And George <laughs> said, he quoted the words of Donald Trump and the predictions of the apocalypse. I know, I, I know he listens to this show. He's going to be appalled at my impression of him. But, but, but looks all, he doesn't actually listen there. We should actually get him to listen to a couple he of does, times. He, anyway. he said he does. He said he does listen. Mm. So he's going to be appalled at my impression of him. But, you know, <laughs> okay, okay. I sort of agree that these people 
who are going too far. Uh, I, it's, he's, he's lost Scottish now. I think he's moved to Ireland. So I'll stop doing the impression. But I mean, his, his point was, you know, that, that the a bit like Donald Trump is saying, you know, are we not helping ourselves when we become these perennial prophets of doom? Is there perhaps a, uh, you know, and, and Greta Thunberg, for example, mm. got a very important message to relay. But, uh, you know, she is a child manipulated by these anti-capitalists. She's had her childhood stolen from her by the adults who are pursuing this agenda of their own. Mm, mm, um, mm. And, you know, it's all, again, just feeding this uh, this, this uh, climate change denying machine, isn't it? And the more you say, oh, we've only got a few years left before it all goes to shit, um, the the more ammunition that they're given. I mean, the, the, perhaps there needs to be, I don't know. You you want to make it a more nuanced debate, but also you want to say that yeah, but this is serious. We we can't spend fifty years on this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's debating the uh, debating as you approach the iceberg whether the iceberg's made of ice or snow, uh, or ice or mist. Um, that's what it amounts to, unfortunately. Mm. And it, it, this is why I say it, it's not the the lefties didn't originate this. The engineers and the physicists did. If you go back, I think it's Fourier, uh, maybe an extremely important person in mathematics, um, uh, who first uh, worked out that because of the absorbent, because because carbon dioxide effectively captured uh, radiant, ca- captured uh, light wavelength radiation effectively, and it re-emitted it as as infrared. Therefore, you go from light to warmth. Uh, because it did that, therefore there was a greenhouse effect, meaning that light, the, the, the reason the greenhouse is warmer than the surrounding uh, uh, land is that light, which would, uh, if, it, if it was, no, there was no greenhouse roof on top of a greenhouse, then the sunlight would come in and, and bounce and be absorbed by the plants to some extent, but most would be reflected back into outer space uh, because the you know, the roof of the greenhouse is there. The light comes in through the greenhouse, goes back, hits the greenhouse, and bounces back down again, yeah. and stays longer, and then takes, and therefore the temperature is higher in the greenhouse. That's why it's called the greenhouse effect. Now that was a physicist. Um, when it comes to the people who first said this potentially raises systemic threats for human civilization, it was the limits to growth, and the limits to growth, the the, the the two authors we hear about most are the, the, the Meadows husband and wife team and Randers, Jorgen Randers, who's still alive and kicking and still working on this area. Um, but the person who was the original architect um, was Jay Forrester. Now, Jay Forrester's initial claim to fame was he did the mathematics that designed the shooting characteristics of the turrets on American warships in World War II. Okay. We're talking one of the world's great engineers. Uh, without him, they might they probably wouldn't have lost against the Germans. But he gave them serious capabilities to, to beat to beat the Germans and beat the Japanese by having better mathematics behind the, the gun turrets in naval conflict. So we ain't talking a lefty here. We're talking a serious engineer. Mm. And then he put the uh, a whole idea of. Um, in, in fact, the, the, way, the, the technology that was behind limits to growth was first used to explain to a manufacturing firm that he was consulting for in Massachusetts somewhere like why they had cycles. They couldn't understand why they had, uh, they'd be ramping up production and ramping it down again, up in dramatic volatility in the internal uh, uh, 
workflow of this one manufacturing firm. And he simply sketched out a relationship to saying, well, let's say you've got a, a mark, you come up with a new product and it's somebody in, you know, one of your engineers invents a new product and you uh, then have to turn it from a, a an idea into a working prototype and then you've got to build the machinery to make the working prototype on a regular basis so you can manufacture the item. Then you've got to market it. Uh, <clears throat> then you've got to get your suppliers to bring their materials in time and so on. And he said, when you put all this together, you get a whole series of time lags that cause cycles. So it came from an engineering and management background. And then when it applied to the global economy, same sort of story, you can bring out fundamental parameters of the global economy. The, obviously, the population is one. Uh, the food production is another. Pollution absorption uh, capability is the third characteristic. There are about seven all up that they had. And they said, when you look at the interactions between these, uh, they, didn't get, they weren't looking to get cycles out of the model. They're saying that you will ultimately... Um, if you continue this rate of growth on the on the planet, then you will get to a point where one of five or six different sorts of breakdowns occur because you either start running out of natural resources, which is not the primary one they talked about, uh, or you start generating too much pollution, uh, or you start breaking down your food system, et cetera, et cetera. And these complicated feedback effects will undermine the viability of the, of, the, of the global economy. Now, again, that was a challenge to the free marketeers because what it implied was if you just let the economy go as it's going right now, we're going to have a crisis in the future. Uh, therefore, we have to, oh, my God, plan. And that included uh, the, the, two, the two scenarios that actually led to sustainable outcomes of the 14 they looked at, both involved, had to include population control. Uh, but it also included, you know, uh, ramping up uh, pushing up the re level of research into renewable resources, uh, reducing uh, loads on, on food systems, um, controlling, you know, re reducing plastic waste, yada, yada, yada. That's the whole, whole range of different things had to be done. Uh, and then we could have a sustainable future. Now, the whole idea that the market economy didn't reach a long-run equilibrium which, wouldn't, which could cope with any disturbance was just too much for the neoclassicals on one side, but also too much for the oil companies and the coal companies on the other. And even though I, I think it was Exxon first worked out that there would be serious consequences for the planet back in the 1970s, uh, but they worked out in the 70s that within 40 years, we'd start seeing serious breakdowns in the ecological sustainability of the planet. Uh, they, the, 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 the oil industry out of self-interest and neoclassical economists out of ideology both went on the on the attack against limits to growth and disparage and put it down. And part of that was saying it's lefties. Mm. It wasn't lefties. It isn't lefties. It's engineers and physicists. Right. But that, but the Club of Rome, going back, you know, that, I mean, that was that, that's used as an argument, isn't it, by, by a lot of people. And, in fact, Greta Thunberg mentioned this in her speech the other day at Davos, mm. um, that we'll, have, we'll find a solution through technology. So we'll, all, we'll always find ways of coping. So, you know, Club of Rome warned us against the increasing population, but, uh, you know, and, the, and uh, the devastation that that was going to cause and gave a very short timeline on that. And yet we, we managed to feed ourselves because we, you know, through more intensive agriculture, and you know whatever else we did, more fast food outlets. Perhaps we 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 did stuff to get more food to people. And couldn't we just find a technological solution if we allocated the right resources? And I guess there's you know there's a lot of people who are saying even if it is real, you know we'll find a way. We always have in the past. 
Well, that's 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 the sort of um, thinking you'll find behind Ted Nordhauser's most recent paper. Exactly that, a, a sort of technological wonderland future mm. um, that you know technology can 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 absolve all ills and capitalism will generate the technology. So don't worry about it, um, and 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 therefore anybody who does worry about it is anti-capitalist. Yeah, that's that's the way. And we we'll, you know it. just point to the fact that yes, the Club of Rome's uh, predictions didn't come true, which and of course you also point to a document. Not as prediction. This is what mm. – I've lost my temper once. Well, I've forgotten what I was talking about. I got bloody angry. Well, I'm going to I'm going to stop prodding you now. You can, yeah. It's, it's going to so just stay, stay tuned. It's, I'll see if I can so, make it loose. Yes. <laughs> so many times people will say, they predicted we're going to run out of chromium by, by 1975 or something like that. The, the ta- they had a table in the, in the document. About, about, I think it's table four. It's about, or it's about a five- or six-page table of various resources, known reserves, Rate of uh, rundown of those reserves yeah. and expected depletion rates under under different rates of growth of the economy. That was a table, predominantly. There's a couple of resources in it. Predominantly, a table produced by the Department of Mines and UNESCO Department of Mines, and they simply reproduced the table as a, as, a, as an example of what could happen given current reserves. But they knew there were going to be new reserves discovered, like oil, for example, that would continue discovering new oil resources post-1970. Um, so that table had nothing to do with their model. Okay? It was, the model itself was, it was a set of uh, – it, it's a, it's a mess to look at because of the technology they use, which system dynamics, which has wires going everywhere. It looks like a bowl of spaghetti uh, spilt over a bunch of potato chip, of, uh, of pretzels. That's that's what it looks like when you take a look at the whole diagram. But it was a, a set of differential equations uh, with about seven components to it, none of which were chromium, aluminium, or anything else. There was an index uh, set for re- uh, known resources back in 1900, and they then tracked the level of those resources between 1900 and 1970 to make sure the index matched. There was an index for population. There was an index for pollution index for food production and so on. And those indices were what the predictions were about, not chromium, not aluminium, yada, yada, yada. So when people say, oh, they said we were going to run out of, run out of oil by, by 2010. No, they effing didn't. They simply had a table and you idiots have treated the table as if that's predictions of the model. Right. And, of course, this is another way so they, it they an managed. Input, it was an input to the model. It wasn't even an input. I guess it was an input. It was part of what they did to produce the index of I presume they used. I've got to. I did need to re- reread the book again, uh, but I'm pretty certain that that was not actually an input. It was an example no. of someone else looking at these with a very limited intellectual framework, and they were saying, "Let's have an extended framework that looks at the feedbacks between one component of the global uh, ecological system and other components over time." And then when they did that, and they they deliberately did not put. Um, obvious states on the horizontal axis. So the horizontal axis for the graphs they had is, this is the, the final part of the, of the book where they are doing the runs from the mo- from the computer model now. I had 1,900 at one end of the axis and 2,100 at the other. You have to eyeball to work out where um, the peaks might actually appear, and the peaks tend to be in 2030. So what they were saying is on, on their extrapolations of their indices, not these physical amounts of, of, of commodities that were in this Department of Nines tables, they implied a range of different sorts of crises depending on things like, you know, how many resources were there, um, what rate of discovery might there be, what technological rate of growth was there, what population growth was there. Putting all those together, um, in every case bar two, I think, 
certainly bar one, I think bar two um, of their scenarios uh, that led to a, a breakdown, a breakdown including a collapse in population as a, as a consequence of the breakdowns in other parts of the system. And it's an engineering, it's not a lefty, it's mm. engineering, but it, it challenged the right-wing pro-free market orientation of economists and, of course, the right-wing pro-free market orientation of oil companies. Well, it's because the right-wing, of course, don't want to do anything. They just they don't want any uh, influence to, to be had on the, the way the market operates currently. So America yeah. doesn't need to do anything, of course, because, as, as Donald Trump said, um, perhaps missing the point slightly, that uh, climate change can't be a problem because they have such clean water in America. Uh, and uh, and he's going to join the One Trillion Trees initiative. He didn't actually say how many he's going to plant, but uh, the, the plan is there's this initiative to plant one, billion, one trillion trees by 2050. Meanwhile, over 3,000 square miles of Amazon rainforest was cleared last year. So uh, planting new trees elsewhere, it does feel a bit like stick, a sticking plaster solution. I guess it's good that it's happening. But it's, uh, I mean, I mean the, the problem is when we have these initiatives, it's just like, well, okay, something's being done. We don't need to worry about it now. Well, it's trivialising all the way through, and this is the trouble. They've, they've trivialised the dangers, and the neoclassical economists have played an enormous role in this, certainly starting with Nordhouse, who was the person who, first of all, demolished the perceived credibility of the limits to growth study by misinterpreting it, and, 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 and then the reply from Jay Forrester was published in a journal Economists Don't Read, uh, so he actually took apart Nordhaus's critique and showed it was flawed, showed it was wrong. Um, but what you then had is this this whole reframing of the debate, left versus right, uh, all these lefties, and, of course, the, the, the classic stuff, all these climate scientists conspiring so they can get their mass, massively generous research grants. What a joke! Mm. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I left the academic sector, I'm sick and tired of the performing monkey stuff you have to go through, uh, putting in research grants where one in ten uh, grants are going to succeed overall, and, and and you're wasting your bloody time writing, filling out forms, and answering questions from bureaucrats. You're having your ideas reviewed by people who, um, if the idea is original, then they haven't thought of it. <laughs> Therefore, they decide, well, I haven't thought of it. It doesn't deserve funding. So you get you get zilch, uh, genuine money, and you waste an enormous amount of your time um, writing these. Mm. You know, it's it's their vision of the amount of money and the lifestyle of, of, of the academics who do this is just. And yet it's levelled, it's levelled, isn't it, that people are on this climate change bandwagon because uh, because they're getting paid for they're it. They're making so, money out of it. Now, that the, is a total joke. I mean, anybody working as a climate scientist, particularly if you live, you don't, you don't voluntarily choose to go and spend half your life in Antarctica. Mm. I have friends who've spent six months in Antarctica. It's not a fun place. Uh, you, 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 you wouldn't not do it because of the contribution you've made to humanity's knowledge and that's what really motivates genuine and genuine academics and researchers yeah but uh but you know it ain't it ain't, it ain't they ain't doing it for a cushy lifestyle no become but a day the, trader and have a nice lunch that's a better choice isn't it look uh, fundamentally realistically is government policy ever going to change because if we look at in, no. in australia last month we had the media economic outlook it's a half the, the halfway budget uh, which pledged to supply more money for training in the mining industry because clearly the mining industry can't uh, afford it themselves to train people to keep, uh, you know, for, for, for the new wave of people to be employed in that industry, even though a lot of it's actually done by machines these days and by robots. Mm. Uh, but obviously, you know, they wanted to do something because it contributes so much to the economy. And the other thing that Australia is saying they're going to do, develop more free trade agreements to increase demand for their mineral exports. 
from a country which is already the world's largest exporter of coal. And of course, they're offering subsidies for new coal mines in Australia as well. When we've got that mm. sort of approach, I mean, that is, um, you know, that's going the wrong way, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And then this trouble is, uh, and there's, there's actually a wonderful um, analogy called Lily in the Pond. Have you heard of it? No. I, okay. I think I have heard it, but yeah, tell me more. Yeah. If you have, a, you have a, a lily, which is in a pond, and the lily doubles in size every day, and yeah. after 31 days, it's half the size of the pond, on which day does it become cover the entire pond? The next day. Yes. Okay. And most people don't realize that. Most people get it wrong. Um, the thing is, when you've got an exponential process in a bounded system, then the breakdown comes in the very last doubling mm. or the very, the very last increase. And so you can be doing absolutely fine for 29 out of 30 days, 30 out of 31, 31 out of 32, all looks good, 32, bang, yeah. uh, the, the, the pond is completely covered in stars. Uh, you, so I, have, it, I have to interrupt it, you there now because you you, now you're becoming a doomsayer and you're only doing it because you're trying to uh, yeah, break yeah. down the established <laughs> capital as well. But, so what do you think about Greta Thunberg then? I mean, Davos, she, uh, she said that uh, instantly we should halt all investments in fossil fuel exploration and extraction, immediately end all fossil fuel subsidies, uh, and immediately and completely divest from fossil fuels. I mean, this would be devastating for an economy like Australia. So, does it? I mean, do, if if we were to do that, I mean, first of all, does it make sense? Is that a good first step? And if we do that, what do we do? We'd need some sort of subsidy, wouldn't we, for economies that are dependent on fossil fuels? Because otherwise, oh, yeah, we'd, we'd have a huge reduction in energy output, and then for a, yeah. a, a dramatic collapse in production. And that would not have been necessary if we'd if we'd actually reacted to the limits to growth back in 1972. We're virtually talking half a century ago. Right. So she's not you talking a great deal of sense there. Then I mean, she's she's talking a lot of sense because we've waited 50 years to do anything. Right. And therefore, if you get to that point, then but you if have we did to- all of that tomorrow, then the economy everywhere is. Yeah, it just falls yeah. apart. Uh, yeah, we'd have a we we might see a seventy five percent falling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and 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 what people like Nordhaus and Ted Nordhaus as well, uh, and and Toll and so on and so forth are saying that oh that would impose incredible costs on the third world. What uh, Nordhaus said it'd be burning the village down to save it. Are we better off having the growth, and then with the growth, we're we'll much better able to cope with the consequences in the future. Now, when you when you that that is linear thinking in an exponential world. So if you're actually if you are the little in the pond argument, if you're at the day thirty one, uh, you can't say we've got to let it continue growing. No, you've got to stop it. Otherwise, the pond gets totally covered, and then all the fish beneath the um, the plant suffocate. Um, it's it's the it, you, you cannot apply this thinking when when the process is exponential and exhausting a constrained system. And the whole part, the, their argument is, well, the system's not constrained. All the lake, we, we, technology is making the pond grow faster than the lily, mm. and the lily will never cover the pond. That's their their framework. I now, don't understand. You look at it; it, it ain't it ain't growing that fast. Uh, yeah. I don't understand the situation in Australia anyway. Aside from, if we ignore the the impact of uh, uh, of climate change, if you've got because Australia is the largest exporter of coal, and they tell us it's a you know a better coal, it's in demand because it's uh, you know it's, it's resigned, yeah. yeah. So Less you would have like, yeah. you would have thought if you produce more coal mines right now, which is what Australia is doing, you're going to push prices down because you're increasing supply of that good quality coal, wouldn't it be better to try and constrain that supply 
to keep the prices high. And then also earn more by charging higher royalties. If there's such demand for it, then take more money from it, uh, from the countries that are demanding it, and then use that money for succession planning, which would obviously be investing in renewables or what you're going to do when that coal runs out. Uh, But Mm -hmm. they're not doing any of that. No, none of that. Like the coal won't run out. This is like in terms of mm. in our resources. I think we've got enough coal. For, like, and if if we could, if there were no consequences to the ecology for for using the coal, I think we've got enough coal and current energy growth trends to go to continue for another three hundred years. So coal we're never yeah. going to run out of. Uh, it, 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 we'll we'll run out of out of life on the planet long before we run out of coal. Right. Um, I think that that is ironic because coal itself was once life on the planet. And the interesting thing in Australia is as well, they're, you know, they're, they're decreasing the uh, employment benefits from it all because they're investing in robot trucks, robot trains. So they're digging up the country, shipping it out, taking these low royalties, not even creating many jobs. It's just the, the foreign earnings that they're gaining from it. Mm. Mm. Nuts, yeah. isn't it? And don't forget Gina Ronhart. She gets a few dollars. She gets a quite a bit of it as well, absolutely, and quite yeah. a lot of influence. Look, if we go back to 2006, we had the, the stern review on climate change. It said... Using the results from formal economic models, the review estimates that if we don't act, the overall costs and risks of climate change will be the equivalent to losing at least 5% of global GDP each year, now and forever. If a wider range of risks are taken into account, uh, the estimates of damage could rise to 20% of GDP or more. In contrast, the costs of action reducing greenhouse gas emissions to avoid the worst impacts of climate change can be limited to around 1% of global GDP each year. That's what they said. That was 14 years ago. So have we really seen GDP hit by 5% each year for the last 14 years? No, I mean, no so you're saying, we're saying once you get to the temperature levels, you know, two and three degrees above current levels. Um, Stern was a more reasonable uh, version of the same sort of stuff that Nordhaus does where you use current data uh, about GDP and temperature to predict what's going to happen when global temperatures rise. Um, but he, what he applied was a lower discount rate, a discount rate of about 1%. Yeah. And therefore, his damages came out as higher than Nordhaus's. And it was all the debate over the discount rate. And until I started researching this stuff, I thought I would find that the, the main reason Nordhaus got the trivial damages he got was by having a very high rate of discount. I instead have found that he assumed that the damages would be trivial. He started off, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, by assuming that 87% of American GDP would be unaffected by climate change of any scale. And if you say 87 is not, not affected, then there's only 13% that can be damaged. Of the 13% he said could be damaged, 3% he said was in high exposure, but he gave figures saying it might be positive or might negative. 10%, uh, maybe 10, $10 billion damages in 1988 prices to $9 billion worth of benefits, line ball call. Uh, that left just two areas where there's going to be damages. One of those was electricity demand. He said the damages will be $1.65 billion per year in 1988 dollars, I think. I took a look at the original data. The data he was using said 33 to $73 billion worth of damages. So, uh, you know, I have never seen such fraudulent garbage in my life as I'm finding and reading all the stuff on climate change. Well, some, in, in some cases, I mean, climate change could be a good thing, couldn't it? If you are a, uh, a fuel producer, you look at a country like Australia, for example, okay, you know, aside from the 
obvious news that Australia has been burning down, but it's not been burning down in central Sydney and, and, and central Melbourne. Uh, all we've seen is those increasing temperatures uh, and unclean air have forced people to uh, turn on their air, con- air conditioning. So power consumption has increased. So actually, you know, better return for the uh, for the companies producing the energy. So uh, the the impact, the economic impact in Australia might be quite minimal. In fact, could be the opposite, couldn't it? Um, this is where the whole conceptualization of climate change in most of the public and the most of the mainstream, the mainstream economists is just completely garbage. It's just not even in the right ball. It's garbage. Mm. It's not in the right ballpark because. But in these, uh, the, the reason I raise that because in these, if you if the if the models are looking at inputs, and uh, you're looking at power consumption and the impact of that, then you know couldn't it go the other way? Well, let's say, let's look at, there's actually an excellent book, which I recommend people reading as long as they're sitting down, called Six Degrees by a guy called Mark Linus. It's about a 2007 book. I think it's getting quite dated now. But what he did was take a look at the, what was the globe like when the temperatures were one, two, three, four, five, and six degrees, respectively, higher than current day degree, uh, t- temperatures, and therefore feed that back to what would the, what would human societies be like in those regions? Now, this is, a summary people can find on the web of, of six degrees. We'll put the link up on the on the podcast. Under three degrees, um, which is pretty much baked in. That's you know it's it's we're going there. We, yeah. we're, we're not going to we're not going to stop at one point five. We're not going to stop at two. Three mm. is quite likely. This is just a, a dot point on Australia again. Australia has become the world's driest nation, so it's the driest second driest continent right now. The driest being Antarctica. Uh, but it's not the driest nation. If you went to when you, uh, I don't which which whatever country is is has most of the Sahara Desert, Libya, the world's that's, driest nation. Yeah. So Australia's going to become drier than that nation. Days when temperatures exceed forty degrees will exceed will increase sixfold. Uh, the drought frequency will triple, and rainfall plummet by twenty five percent with extreme winds. Australia's main rivers will lose between twenty five percent and fifty percent of their flow. Now. Try to imagine. What a, a great opportunity you've talked about there, Steve, for the for the energy industry. They can and for the water industry, we can spend money on desalination plants. We all can, over the. Uh, yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. there's a, a, we, a technology can solve all of that. And all the pipes we can and help the economy at the same time. Yeah, and, and that's that's the, the technological dreamism that's used in the other direction. Uh, so that the right gets associated with the level of technological dreaming when and you look at the rate of technology change necessary to achieve the sort of outcomes they're talking about. Again, this is where I come back to Nordhaus's reduction of a 33 to $73 billion figure by the, the United States Environmental Protection Agency to $1.65 billion. The only way it could have done that is by assuming a rate of technological change of 45 to 5.5% per annum, which is about three times the rate of technological change. But isn't uh, when you aggregate? But isn't that? I mean, the, the reason why I was giving that as an example was because isn't that part of yeah. the problem with a lot of these models? We tend to look at the impact of climate change. What does a rising temperature mean for economic output? You know, and we look at uh, worker productivity or agricultural impact. Whereas yeah. what you're saying is, well, it's something slightly more significant than that. You're sort of like looking oh, at yeah. a, a model which is really uh, saying, yeah, well, the 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 the, uh, the, the impact is going to be at the edges. Not in the core. Yeah, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. it, it it's it's if you it, it's always saying this stuff is going to be uh, undesirable but manageable. Mm. That's the way they put it across. Yeah. When in fact, when you look at what in what is involved in raising the temperature of the planet by three degrees, is an, a, a ludicrous level of retention of a, additional energy from the sun. That's it's not our consumption of energy 
and, and dumping that into the, into the biosphere that matters. If we just generated waste energy, it all radiates into outer space. It's the fact that we're adding a layer which, which traps that and therefore warms the planet. And therefore, the, the temperature of all the, of, of all the biological act- actions on the planet shift dramatically. And in, in terms like if it was a three-degree increase in temperature, that would mean on, 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 on the, across the entire planet because most of the planet is ocean. Uh, that three-degree increase in the temperature of the air uh, on the average would increase to about a 10-degree increase in the temperature in, in the inland of continents. Now, 10 degrees uh, increase in the major land masses is going to make major parts of them uninhabitable. And you, you simply can't extrapolate from today's economy to an economy where it's three degrees warmer. But that's precisely what mainstream economists are doing. And then back to Davos again, this is where the climate change denialism comes in because they're looking at reports and saying, well, the IPCC itself says that a, a three-degree increase in temperature will only reduce GDP by 2%. Who wrote the IPCC report? Richard Toll. Right. Who is one of these economists and climate change trivialises? Mm. So what they're quoting is the economists saying it's not going to be much impact. So the, the the oil companies can quote the economists to justify the oil companies being self-interested and saying it's only a trivial thing. They're both. I think the oil companies had a better idea of what actually is involved in this, uh, but the. The, the commercial denialism is supported by theoretical denialism and it's put across as a left versus right thing when it's an engineering and ecology vision versus the fantasy of a, a techno fairy. I just think an interesting study. I wonder how many climate change deniers, I wonder how many of them have got children. Uh, only whether they're, they're concerned in short term because they haven't got any legacy uh, in their family. Look, um, just on this trivialising, and I know you're not a big supporter of the idea of carbon trading, but, but, I mean, at least it was a way of trying to use our existing economic systems to try and find a solution. But it was trivialised, wasn't it? Because if we look at uh, Germany, for example, they're announcing a carbon trading scheme that's going to start next year. That places a value of $10 per tonne of carbon. Seems pretty trivial, doesn't it? Mm, yeah. And like my feeling is that, you know, I've come to this only recently, um, carbon pricing is not going to do it. Tell me the price of carbon that's going to stop Antarctica melting. Um, but you can say, well, the quantity of carbon that would cause that to happen is, roughly speaking, given the temperature relationships when carbon increase and the feedbacks and temperature, is you know, X, X billion tonnes of carbon in the atmosphere. Therefore, we can ration it. Uh, so rationing would work far more effectively but than But can't pricing. we ration it with price? If rather than saying $10 per tonne, I mean, Sweden, for example, charges $125 per tonne. If we said, okay, well, if, if you run a business and you're going to charge $125 per tonne of carbon um, and you perhaps get an equally magnificent subsidy to switch to green energy, then that transformation could happen fairly quickly, couldn't it? And it would be zero uh, cost to ex- government. Ex- ex- except for the riots from the working class who can't afford the extra price increase. Mm. And this is this is where the, the, the gilets jaunes came from. Uh, Macron putting up the price of diesel had no impact upon people in Paris who can get around in, tra- in, the, in the metro anyway, yeah. uh, or, or, or wealthy enough to not even need to worry about the price of diesel. Um, whereas the, the working class and the, and the, and the middle class, and the, and the, and the, um, particularly in the uh, outside Paris, have to travel, have to drive to get to work, couldn't afford it, and they went on riot. So the, the only way you can do it is, is uh, I would have a, a ration where everybody got the same carbon ration. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and then we could have rationing trading in terms of our personal rations that way and corporate rations. It is a rich um, poor question, isn't it? Even yeah, it, within it, it, countries, it, it, but between countries as well, because the yeah. countries that are suffering the least 
um, are going to be the, the rich countries, the, uh, and they're, therefore the ones least likely to change behaviour. The poor countries are the ones that are going to feel it the most. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but you know, it is again this is left-right casting of the whole thing, which is so aggravating because it puts, mm. it instantly puts it in their camp because they're saying, oh, the left socialism, communism. You know, I'm, I'm amazed I haven't seen images of Joseph Stalin uh, raised yet uh, by by the by the anti. Uh, Greta Thunberg crowd, but that's that's the sort of vision they have. Um, and in fact, in fact, the irony is it might well make that sort of world necessary because you'd need somebody like a Stalin to enforce the the, the rationing we'll need when we realise just how serious this really is, and that the, the, the trivialisation was you know, completely gaga compared to the actual consequences. Well, could the financing industry actually be part of the answer? Mm. Could, could we start mm. to see investment in some countries being seen? as too big a risk because of the influence they're going to have and investors start to shy away from them, you know, whereas investment in mm-hmm. newer economies uh, and new new technology, but also new technology and new economies where there's not that legacy, could we see that as providing a more positive return? So could the money is- go on the future rather than the legacy? That, that is sort of what's happening at the moment, and that's one reason uh, that people are saying let's divest out of coal, uh, mm. uh, let's, stop, let's stop financing new coal mines, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that attitude can have an impact. That's true. Just that it's, the trouble is if it actually goes the whole hog, uh, it's going to have a, a massive impact on the profitability of the, not just the companies that um, you know, are the coal companies. It's companies that have coal shares in their portfolio. And then the value of apparent value of investments and superannuation uh, in pension funds and so on is going to crash. And then in that situation, the, the domestic economy, the, 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 pri- the private. Well, not if, those, not if those investment, not if those funds re- recognize what's happening and they, they're divesting and investing in in more profitable uh, new industries. No, but if they if they've still got if, if if a large part of their asset banking is still the valuation of shares of coal companies and those share companies so suddenly yeah. plummet towards zero, yeah. then bang, those companies are going to be bankrupt, and uh, and 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 the banks in particular could be bankrupt. So you're in that situation where the only rescue can be by the government, and that's why I think we're, we're people who have been trying to keep the government out of it. Uh, by this, you know, trivialising the dangers, are going to be responsible for needing government on a, with an iron fist with a with a you know a, a, a war economy, government run system when we finally react to just how serious this threat is. Right. Well, we'll leave it there because that's a good point to leave on. Because next time we're going to talk about uh, when the government does want to spend more money. Is it going to have any impact at all? Because and not just in terms of uh, climate change, but in terms of uh, stimulating the economy. Because if we believe Milton Friedman, you know, I know you're a big fan, uh, it's going to have no mm-hmm. impact whatsoever. So we're going to look at that because uh, of his idea of nominal value. We're going to look at that next time. Thanks, Steve. Okay. Welcome, mate. Bye. Yeah, we're going to get stuck into a bit more economic theory next time. That's it for the Debunking Economics podcast for this week, though. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.